to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. for joining us on uh, Easter Sunday morning. We're so glad that you're here today. We've had such a full weekend. So exciting to see what God has done. You see the cross behind us here. Many of you may have been here on Friday night when we had the cross service, which we do this every year on Good Friday. And I built a cross where I preached the message of the cross. Just celebrate with us for a moment. We had so many decisions that we were a little bit overwhelmed in a really, really good way. But we had ultimately 50 people gave their lives to Jesus on Friday night. Made a decision, follow Christ. Wow. We are very excited about that. But you know, God's not done at the cross. God has so much beyond the cross that he's going to do. The title of the message today is God's Not Done With You. And if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, we'll read in just a moment. You know, the resurrection says that God's not done at the cross. And we all know the story. There's more. And that more was that Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. And I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Hundreds of people knew Jesus before he died on the cross. We know the disciples. We know the names of some of the women that knew Christ. Uh, We know that many on the Mount of Beatitudes heard Jesus teach. But several hundred knew him personally before the cross. But have you ever considered this fact about the resurrection? that untold millions have come to know Jesus after the resurrection. And that's part of why the resurrection is there, so that Christ would come back from the dead and reveal himself to those of us on this side of history. And what an incredible opportunity it is to know Jesus Christ personally. And that's really the focus of the message today in Philippians chapter 3. You know, when I was in college a number of years ago, I was very aware of an attractive female student on our campus, and her name was Kim Hawkins. That was her maiden name. And I remember one day when someone came up to me and said, do you know Kim? Do you know that girl named Kim? And I said, well, I know who she is, but I don't know her personally. However, I said, I would really like to know her personally. And they introduced me to her, and it wasn't long before we were an everyday item. And now 45 years later, she's been my wife for those 45 years, and my life has changed so powerfully since knowing her. Now, I think most of us have a story of someone we came to know in a personal way, and it's altered our lives, changed our life, hopefully for the better than we were before. Well, take that best scenario of relationships, magnify it by a million times, And that's what it means to personally know the resurrected Jesus Christ. My goal today is for you to know Christ in the most intimate possible way. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Would you stand with me as we read this text today? Most of us know who the Apostle Paul is. Before his renaming to Paul, he was Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee. Believing he was doing what he was supposed to be doing was missing God in every way, though. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, he talks about the power of the resurrection in his own life. And that's what I want you to see today, how the resurrection changes everything and everyone. 
Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, every time you see the word know or knowing in this text, it's a word that means to experience. It's not just knowing about, it's not just seeing from a distance, but experiencing him in a personal way. The surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whom I, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And here it is again in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I truly believe this passage can change your life. And I believe it's changed Paul's life. I believe it's changed my life. And my prayer is it will change your life. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you'll reveal the truths of this passage to each one of us today. Just shine the spotlight on our hearts and on this truth. And Lord, let it prove revolutionary to every one of us. I ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. I guess you can see the emphasis here without much instruction going on. Just read the text and you can see a few things. The resurrection is mentioned all the way through this text several times. And then you see the word knowing used at least twice. And the idea there is, Paul is saying that the greatest goal I have in life and the greatest pursuit I have is knowing Jesus Christ personally. Now, this would be the resurrected Jesus. Jesus came, lived perfectly on the earth for 33 years, died on the cross, rose again the third day. That's what we've been celebrating today. And it's easy to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We love to tell the story of how he came back from the dead. But what are you doing with Jesus on the other side of death? And what are you doing with Jesus on the other side of the tomb? He's, he's alive. He's resurrected. Has that made a difference in your life? Paul says, it's made an incredible, extraordinary difference in my life. And today as we walk through this text, I want to show you some things that Paul discovered about the resurrection of Jesus. Things you'll learn that I think are very, very important. Number one, we learn that God's not measuring you. God is not measuring you. Now there's another part to that statement that I'm going to reveal in just a few moments. But first, let's just park on that just a moment. Most of us believe that the way we have a relationship with God is by us measuring up to some standard that God has placed in front of us. But Paul says right at the top of this text something different. He says, and I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I'm convinced that most of us 
spend most of our lives measuring up in some way to God's expectations. In fact, I know this. Entire religions are built upon that. They're built upon not doing the don'ts and doing the things that we learn we are to do. It's about measuring up to what we were last year or the year before or measuring up to other people in our lives. And so we, we look at God and we say, you know, God, I know you're measuring me. I know you're evaluating me to see whether I'm worthy or not to be able to be in relationship with you. And so that's kind of how life operates. We do that in every other realm of life. It just kind of makes sense to us. We compete with others for grades. We compete for others for our jobs. We compete on the athletic field. We try to measure up to our neighbors. We want what everybody else wants because we don't want to be missing or behind or or lacking in some way. I mean, all of life is like that. So it's kind of logical sense to say, "Well, well, God's like that. Relating to God is like that. I need to measure up to God for him to accept me. And we would be wrong, just like Paul was wrong. In fact, if you read these verses, you can see where Paul puts forth two measures of righteousness here. One was Paul's, and the other was Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice what it says and what that means. Paul's story really is all about an attempt to be religiously perfect. He's trying to measure up in every way that he can possibly measure up to the Old Testament law that you find in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments, for example, And also the 631 rabbinical additions to the law that you also see in Scripture. And he was trying to measure up to all those things. And yet at the same time, he realized that he couldn't measure up all the way. And he was frustrated. I want you to notice what he says about his own life in verses 4 through 6. If you have your Bibles open to Philippians 3, this is quite revealing. He says, if anyone has a mind to have confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is from the law found blameless. And honestly, nobody could beat Paul in that. I mean, he had the pedigree, he had the background, he had the training, he knew the law in every possible way. And nobody could beat Paul. Sometimes we look around us and say, you know, I can't beat that person. I can't be as spiritual as that person or as perfect as that person. And when we compare ourselves with everyone else, we focus on our shortcomings. We focus on our failures. We focus on every loss that we have. And we feel those failures and we feel weak and we feel unable. And it either makes us become perfectionists like Paul or it makes us try harder and eventually just give up. Paul was a perfectionistic type, and he was doing everything he could. But I want you to know this is not God's standard for Paul, and it's not God's standard for you. Paul was basically saying, here's the law right here, and I measure up almost all the way to the completeness of the law. I'm blameless before everybody else. And then Jesus came along, which is why Paul was mad at Jesus before his conversion. And Jesus made this statement. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden, Paul's comparison changed. This is the law, and this is Paul. And then here is Jesus, who is perfect in every way. And Paul realizes, I can't have a relationship with God if it has to come through Jesus. I can never measure up. 
to who Jesus Christ is. But one day Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I hope you know the story. It's found in Acts chapter 9, chapter 26, and chapter 24 where he's retelling it. And Paul is marching on the way to persecute the, the church, those who are truly following Christ at the time. And he's breathing threats. It says he's breathing murder. He's going to put him to death because he doesn't believe in what they believe in. And he sees a bright light on the road to Damascus. In fact, the light blinds him so much. And then he hears the voice coming out of, of heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you going the wrong way? And at that moment, the apostle Paul, whose name was Saul at the time, met Jesus Christ personally and intimately in his resurrection form on the road to Damascus and everything changed about his life. In fact, if you read everything he says after his encounter with Jesus, it's not about measuring up. He talks about being chosen. He talks about being appointed by God in spite of anything good or anything bad that he'd done in his life. His whole conversion moment was about accepting Jesus Christ and his righteousness. In other words, what Paul said basically in the end is, if you accept the Son, you accept everything, and the Father accepts you. Now listen to the line that he says in the latter part of that verse we read, that I may be found in him with the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. When all was said and done, God did not want Paul's performance. He wanted his acceptance of the son and the recognition of his son as the perfect son. And in exchange, Paul was accepted by God. And that's the principle. When you accept God's son, God accepts you as his own. That's a very different measure than what we measure most of the time. Years ago, there was a story told, and it bears repeating, even though it's been around for a long time. It was the story of a father and a son, both of whom uh, had art passions. They had a passion for art, for purchasing art. They themselves were artists. And so they spent time going throughout the world, collecting these different famous pieces of art from the most famous of all artists. And they built a collection in their home. In the course of time, the son was drafted into the army, went to serve overseas, and died in service. It was a few months later that one of the comrades of this son who had died came to that father's house and unfolded a portrait he had made by hand while on the battlefield. He said, I know you've lost your son, and I want you to know he was close to me as well, and I'm just presenting you with this portrait that I made on the battlefield of your son. Of course, the father was still grief-stricken over the loss of his son, but took the portrait and moved everything else out of the way, all the most famous, most valuable paintings out of the way, and put the portrait of his son over the fireplace so that it would be centered to everything because of his love for his son. In the course of time, he died. And of course, when he died, the instructions to the executors of his state were that they would sell the estate in an auction. Everybody came from far and wide to get one of those paintings to bid on the most valuable art in the world. And the way it was arranged by his will is that the son's portrait would come up first. And the auctioneer began to call for bids on the portrait of the son, just a hand-drawn portrait of a son. Not bad, not excellent, certainly not famous like the rest of the art. art that was on display. Everybody was just waiting for the most valuable pieces to be auctioned off. And at the end of the bids for the son, 
It was sold for $100 to a close friend of the family. And with that, the auctioneer shut the whole auction down and said, the terms of the will are this. Whoever has the son gets it all. Whoever buys this painting gets all of them free. And I think that's an incredible story to help us remember. He who has the son has the life. In fact, that's what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. God is not measuring you. He's doing something completely different. He's accepting you by his grace and by his forgiveness and his goodness. And that's how you meet Jesus. Not with a bright light on a road to Damascus the way Paul did, but with the recognition that he has everything for you. His righteousness was enough to pay for your sin. And once you find yourself in him, you have his righteousness in your life. You don't have to measure up because you've been accepted by God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Somebody needs to say amen about that because that means that we are forgiven. God's not measuring you. But this text also says God's not condemning you. God's not condemning you. In verse 10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, if I were to ask a question of you today, where did death begin? Most of you would go all the way back to the book of Genesis where death actually began. Adam and Eve were created in the garden of Eden. They were placed and they were walking in innocence before God. God gave them one command and they disobeyed the one by eating of the tree that was forbidden. And as a result of that, sin cursed mankind. And the very first part of that curse was the declaration of death. Death came because man became condemned in disobedience. Condemnation brings death. Now, here's Paul, who's not talking about condemnation, but he's talking about life. It's really amazing how different perspectives are when you understand that there is a resurrection. Keep in mind, I'm a pastor, and, and I do lots of funerals. Unfortunately, when people die, then there I am doing the funeral quite often, and I stand at the head of the casket when that casket is open, and Often people walk by paying their last respects to the family and to the deceased. And I can tell you from very early on as a pastor, I, I can remember watching people's countenance, watching their faces as they walk past that casket and realizing who really believed in the resurrection of the dead and who did not. For those who did not believe in resurrection, it was a grief-stricken moment. It was final. Death is it. There's nothing other than death. Nothing on the other side of death, and you can see it on their face. But for those who walk by, there's a measure of grief, but they're not grieving as though they have no hope. They grieve in a different way, and that grief is, yes, they died, but I know they're with Christ today, and I'll see them again. It's a very different look, a very different countenance, a very different perspective. Resurrection brings a whole new view of condemnation and death Unlike anything we've ever experienced before, God is not condemning you. He lifts the condemnation and gives light through the resurrection when we put ourselves in Jesus Christ. Far from condemning, he is preparing a place for us, has a plan for us. Have you ever thought about why God would create heaven? It's because he wants you with him for all time and all eternity. He's not condemning you. He's preparing you 
for the day when you can walk with him intimately and personally day by day, by day by day, by year by year, forever and ever. And an existence so far surpassing what we have here on this planet, we can't even imagine what it's like. So there's no condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the scripture says. In fact, when you read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, you have an incredible picture of what our relationship with God is really like. Chapter 8, verse 1, here's what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope you let that, that verse come to your heart. There is now, therefore, no condemnation not since Christ died, not since Christ rose from the dead. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you keep reading through Romans 8, you'll realize this truth. God's not condemning you. He is adopting you. It's a very different relationship that he has for us. You know, by, by law in Rome, you can disown biological children, but you cannot disown adoptive children. Now, let that sink in for a moment. I mean, we never imagined that we would disown our biological children. But by Roman law, you had to do research into the life of the child you were adopting. And by law, you had to keep them for all of your life. They immediately received all that you owned. And so you had to check them out really well if you were going to adopt them. Adoption was a permanent decision, a forever decision. But the idea of adoption in Roman culture was the illustration that Paul chose to use about our relationship with God in Christ now. Because what adoption says to us is it helps us see God's view of us. Here's, here's, here's the view that God has of us. When you come to Christ, he knows about your past. He knows about the things you've kept hidden. He knows about your shame. He knows about your sin. He knows about the thoughts in your life, everything you've ever thought. Every wicked thing you've ever participated in, he knows that. He knows your present. He knows what was going on yesterday and what's going on today. He knows what's on your mind right now, even as you listen to me. But God also knows your future. You don't even know your future. But God knows what's going to happen next week and next month and next year. And in spite of everything God knows, and he knows it all, in spite of all that, the Bible says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And further it says, you've not been given the spirit of fear leading to slavery again, but you have been given the spirit of adoption by where you call God Abba, Father. You have a spirit of adoption in Christ. You can now call the Father Abba, which is the most intimate way to express yourself to God the Father. Abba is that intimate name that Jesus Christ himself called God the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, you see Jesus used this. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, that is the cup of suffering for me, yet not what I will, but you will. It's a term of endearment, a term of trust. It means I surrender to you. Now, I've got adult children today, but even when they were young and in the home, they didn't call me father. I am their father, but they didn't call me father. I have all kinds of nicknames that they've given me. Daddy, when they were younger. Dad. Paul, one of them calls me. Pop, one of my daughter calls me. All kinds of affectionate terms. But those terms 
are terms that I love. And I love them because it says intimacy. They don't just say, hey, Father John, can I do this or that? <laughs> that would be weird. But Dad, Pa, Pop, it implies relationship. It implies love. It implies trust. It says there's intimacy. It says that we are together in this. Do you know what God is saying to you by telling you you can call him Abba, Father? That you're not being measured. You've been accepted. You're not being condemned. You've been adopted into his family. Let that sink into your mind for just a moment. You're not trying to measure up. You're just a son or a daughter of God through Jesus Christ who does measure up and who always has. It's so important for you to get this idea of the resurrection's power says that everything that was necessary in dealing with sin and death and condemnation, Jesus did so that you can be an adopted son or daughter of God. Try that on for size. Feel what that means. So God's not measuring you. He's accepting you. God's not condemning you. He's adopting you. And then finally, Paul helps us see that God's not done with you. He's not done with you. He's got a future for you. Notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. Just love this. These are some of the most often quoted verses that I hear people sharing, especially when they're eager to see what the future is. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. I just love that line. Would you repeat that with me? Forgetting what lies behind. What a line. What a, an important thing to know. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Who doesn't have something that they want to forget and leave behind? I remember a few years ago waking up in the middle of the night and I must have been dreaming about things in my past because in my memory, as vivid as I can imagine, I was remembering disappointing things that I'd said and done many years past. I was feeling the weight of it for some reason. It was just on me. It was heavy, and, it was, and, and the memory was vivid. And I was confused about why I was remembering all these things that I hadn't thought of in years and years. I'm so grateful that in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to me in an unforgettable way, saying, I'm not condemning you. I'm reminding you of all that you've been forgiven of so that you can focus on the future and help others that are walking through the same condemnation that you one time felt. And I thought, that's what it means to forget what lies behind and be able to stretch forward to what lies ahead. Keep looking forward, not backwards, is what Paul is saying. Don't look back on your old way of life. If anyone had regrets about the old way of life, it would have been Saul or Paul putting people to death who followed Christ. So this passage tells us, keep looking ahead. Don't look behind. My favorite vehicle is an old Ford truck that uh, I've been restoring for a long time. It's a 1992 version. It's had its 32nd birthday the other day, right? So I love that truck a lot. And that truck has a rearview mirror on it, but not like the new cars. It doesn't have the big 12-inch screen where you can see a panoramic vision of what's behind you, and I'm glad. It's just got a little skinny rearview mirror. 
A little skinny rearview mirror lets me glance and look at what's behind me, but it's, it's all I need, really. Because if I tried to drive that truck forward while looking and focusing on what's behind me, I would surely have a, coll a collision ahead of me. But instead of that, there is a larger piece of glass called the windshield in front of that little review mirror. And that windshield gives me panoramic vision. I can see everything in front of me, and I'm designed, and we as drivers are designed to just look forward so that we can see everything in our path as we drive forward. And if I try to drive, keeping my eyes on that rearview mirror, I will have a collision. And life is very much like that. If you try to live life forward while looking back all the time, you will have all kinds of problems in the future. But the past can be forgotten. It can be put away by the power of Christ, and you can fully focus on the future. And that's what Paul is saying here. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind means that I know my past is completely covered in Jesus Christ. When he died on that cross, he took all my sins, past, present, and future, even though I wasn't alive when Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago. God is timeless, and Jesus' death was timeless. That means everything in my past was covered by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And all forgiven and all paid for. So what that means is, I know I'm completely hidden in Christ. Forgetting what lies behind is completely connected with remembering who we are in Christ. And that's a daily decision that you have to make in order to live life forward. Now, there's another line here before we're through. And that line is, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of Jesus Christ. The word call means the invitation. And it means that Christ is inviting you to an upward call. He's calling you up not back. You have an upward invite from Christ. Now listen to me carefully. Every day you'll get two invitations. One from the accuser, the enemy, who calls you back. And one for, from the forgiver, who is Jesus, who calls you forward. How you live life depends on what you do with those two invitations. Now you think about all the things that the accuser of the brethren calls you to go back to. And when he calls you, you say, Jesus Christ has promised that he has taken care of my past through his blood. I'm not going back there anymore. He has also promised me that he's called me to something in the future. That's the direction I'm going in, forward, not backwards. You see, when you can live like that and think like that, God's not done with you. He has a whole new chapter to open up in your life. And he closes the old chapter in a way that makes it permanent. So let me ask you today, what do you need to forget? Then forget it. Put it behind you. Wait a minute, Pastor, you don't know how big my past was. You don't know how egregious my sin was. You don't know how deep I was into that. And let me just ask you, is it deeper than death? Is it further away from the finality of death? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. His power is enough to deal with your past, however big you may think it is. Forget what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. If Paul can help a religious terrorist like Paul forget his past, he can help you. If Paul can help a man named Peter who denied Christ three times, he can help you move forward. If he can help 
a doubting man like Thomas, who even doubted the resurrection, then he can help you move forward. He can help you deal with your past and give you a new life on your earth until eternity happens. Forgetting what lies behind, reach forward to what lies ahead. Now, let me invite you to something. Over the next nine weeks, I'm going to take the time to walk through nine biblical characters that were called by God away from their past into a brand new future. And they all had to conclude, God's not done with me. Some of them were extraordinarily surprised. Some of them were stunned that God was uh, not done with them. But in each case, some of these great heroes in the Bible, you'll see the story of how you can understand they thought God was done with them, but how God surprised them and said, I'm not done with you. I'm going to use your past and propel you into an amazing future. And that's the message series we'll be in for the next nine weeks. God's not done with you. You can forget the past. You can move forward into the future. Now, let me bring you three verses that I need you to, to just let, let sink into your heart for a moment. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you today are thinking of those sins. But as you come to him confessing those sins through Jesus' blood, he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Some of you need to hear 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Some of you need to remember what the prophet said in the book of Isaiah. Don't call to mind the former things or ponder things from the past. Behold, I will do something new in your life. And believe God for those things that are new. God's not measuring you. He's accepting you in his son. God is not condemning you. He's adopting you. God is not done with you. He's leading you to a brand new chapter in your life. That door will open when you by faith begin to walk in the direction he's led you. What an incredible promise of a resurrection Savior. The fact that he's alive and leading, the fact that he has helped us deal with all the things in the past and helped us towards the future. My prayer is that God's going to open the door for everybody in this room about what he has for them in the future. So let me ask you this question. Have you met Christ personally. That's the key for all of this. Do you know him personally? Have you come to the place of talking to him and praying to him and saying, Lord, I trust what you did on the cross to forgive me of sin, to give me this gift of eternal life. I am in you and in your righteousness, and my path is covered through your blood. I'm expecting you to lead me into the future. Today, you can say, like Paul, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Not backwards, forwards and upward in Christ. In just a few moments, I'm going to close in prayer, but I gave you three invitations before I do that. Number one, before you leave today and on your way out, you'll see decision stations that are located at the back of our worship center those decision stations are there for conversations. They're there for you to be able to have a conversation with someone who can answer questions you may have. We've talked about what it means to meet Christ personally. Today, I would encourage you to stop and talk to someone about what that means if you haven't ever done that, if you haven't ever experienced that. We want you to experience that today. A casual conversation, 
We go back and forth. We answer questions. We point you to the scripture. So that's the first invitation I give you. Stop by the decision station. Number two, I want to encourage you to come back next week for this series, God's Not Done With You. There's actually a way for you to hand out invites to people in your neighborhood or in the sphere of your influence. Bring them back. You know someone that needs to know that God's not done with them. Bring them with you because these stories are incredible stories that are connecting to us in a powerful way. And then thirdly, if this is your first time with us, I, I want to offer something to you today. If, there's a place called the Guest Central, just outside our center exit doors, right near our coffee shop. Uh, it's a place with several screens around the top of the desk. And if you're a, a guest today and you're here for, for the first time, uh, we have a gift that we want to give you. All you have to do is just let us know who you are, and we encourage you to get on your, your phone and, and write the word text and send it to the number 63566. And that just lets us know who you are. Or you can grab one of the cards in the seat back in front of you and just put your name down in any way that we can contact you. But for being our guest today, we want to present you with a gift and also a free voucher for the book that will be released next week, God's Not Done With You. It'll go right along with our message series. It'll be something you can take home and read through. So that voucher of a free copy of that new book will be given to you when you go back as a guest to that guest central. And I want to encourage you to do that. I'll actually be out there hoping I can meet you over these next few moments. Would you stand with me as we have a closing word of prayer? Father, I'm so grateful that you give us a future secured in Jesus Christ. So thankful that you can take care of our past, something we could never do. I pray today, Lord, for you to personally reveal yourself to those that have never met you, never experienced you before. Father, I thank you so much that the promise of Jesus Christ is still offered today on the basis of his resurrection. And we celebrate that, but we also want to participate in that. So, Lord, today, let each of us do that. Thank you, Father, for all of this. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.